Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing the Marine Corps' newest doctrinal pub, Learning. My guest today is Major General William F. Mullen. Major General Mullen is the Commanding General of Training and Education Command, where he has deep roots as the former CG of the MAGTAF Training Center, former President of Marine Corps University, and CO of McTaug. He commanded 2-6 in Fallujah and has additional deployments to Iraq and in the Balkans, as well as time on the Joint Staff J-3. He is a graduate of Marquette University and the Naval War College. Major General Mullen, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Before we start our discussion, tell us a little bit more about your background. How did a grunt with a career full of operational deployments end up responsible for establishing doctrine on learning? Yeah, it's been a lifelong process of observing people and how they react to the challenges we face over the course of our career, uh, combat in particular. And there's an easy way to do things, and then there's a hard way to do things. And generally what I found is the people that always take the hard way to do things is because they haven't had taken the time to think about things. They haven't done the the continuing professional education that enables you to come up with solutions much faster. It's been pretty frustrating to watch. And in particular, Iraq was kind of a, not a, I wouldn't say as a turning point, because I can't say that I'm surprised in how things happen there. But I'll go back to something uh, that I read a lot. And one of the things I read was something called uh, Bureaucracy Does Its Thing by a guy named uh, Comer mm -hmm. from the Vietnam era. And in reading that, the frustrating piece about that was all the things that he said in there that we did not do well in Vietnam, we did the almost the exact same things in Iraq and Afghanistan. And essentially, it was trying to drive a square peg into a round hole. This is the type of fight we want this to be. You know, Here's our vision of how this should go. And of course, it didn't take into account what the enemy was actually doing. And the folks that took a much more enlightened approach General Petraeus being a, a very good example of that, General Mattis being another one, to how you go about a counterinsurgency and actually trying to win a counterinsurgency instead of just going there to fight and survive your tour. At one point, right before we returned from my second deployment into Fallujah, you know, listening to the national conversation about whether we should stay or whether we should go, what I was thinking to myself is that's our fault in the military because we didn't figure it out fast enough. We did have enough people that were invested enough in their continuing education to read about and truly understand what was going on and think about a better way of doing things. Um, and it took somebody like Petraeus coming in saying, I really don't care what your opinion is. Here's what you're going to do um, and making it happen. And there was still an amazing number of people that resisted it. And I saw it in Afghanistan also when I was going over there um, and watching what was happening there. General Crystal was taking a very similar approach. And the number of people that were resisting was just kind of amazing. And so how do you, in our profession, where it's the most intellectually and physically demanding profession on the face of the earth, how do you not do professional development constantly? Not just when you're made to do it in school, but constantly. How do you learn all the time? How do you understand you'll never be smart enough and how do you get after these things um, to make sure that you're, you never encounter a situation where I, you have no idea what to do? And as I often tell people, I read a great deal. It's, it doesn't give me answers. It helps me come up with answers much faster. So the synthesis of all of that together uh, and watching, frankly, a lack of intellectual curiosity amongst you know our officers, our staff and COs, and our Marines, and then looking at the threats that are out there in the world right now where they're actively avoiding our strengths and going after our weaknesses – We've got to get smarter. 
absolutely got to get smarter. And so that's where the impetus for learning came from. So I am absolutely on board. I don't think that would surprise you at all. But my question would be, why doctrine? Why a doctrinal response to this problem or this challenge? For the foundational piece, because the way I look at our doctrine is Marine Corps doctrinal publications are the why. Why is this important? Why should Marines care about this? The next level down are warfighting publications, and it's the in general how. And then below that level, we have tactical publications, which are very specifically how. They're less doctrine and more tactics, techniques, and procedures. The why piece. One thing with Americans in general, but Marines in particular, is if they know the why, they'll do just about anything. They, they get it. The light bulb comes on. Oh, I get it. Um, when we're getting ready to go back into Fallujah, my Sergeant Major and I did this entire information operations campaign on our battalion saying, here's what the realities of a counterinsurgency is going to look like. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what you're not going to see. Here's what you need to understand about what's going on. And again, the light bulb came on to seeing the Marines' reaction to things. Oh, I get it. Okay. They didn't necessarily like it because it wasn't what they wanted it to be, um, but they understood what was going on. And as we went through the course of the deployment, you could hear them parrot back things we'd talked to them about at the beginning of the deployment. You know, when you're asking, hey, how's it going? Well, sir, you know, because one of the things we told them is quiet in a counterinsurgency campaign is the sound of winning. You know, when the things aren't blown up, you know, people aren't getting shot, um, the, the insurgents look like they're weak. So one time we're walking around talking to the Marines and, hey, how's it going? Quiet, sir. I guess that means we're winning, huh? So when they understand the why, they'll just about get anything done. So why should they get after learning? Why should they be smarter? Why should they develop the intellectual edge all the time? That, to me, is the key. And if they understand the why, it's going to be a lot easier to get to where we need to go. That's fair. And this is not the topic for this particular conversation, but I would argue that that also ties to incentives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that sure you does. lay out the why, you lay out the how, but the accountability piece. Yes. The promotions will be influenced by your performance in this particular area. Yes. Marines are known for being so physically fit. My understanding is that that didn't historically used to be the case, that Marines no. weren't the, the toughest and best until the PFT tied to command and promotion. Yes. And magically within a year, Marines were all, all of a sudden the PT studs. Yeah. And that's the thing is that now we have to do that on the learning side because for quite a few years, PME complete has been, okay, you completed a course, not what did it do for you, how, how did it make you better, and then what happens in between those formal PME experiences, which is probably the most important part because that's where you spend the majority of your career. So how do you incentivize that and get people to understand? It's like, no, this continuing piece means you continue it throughout your career. It's not episodic. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about the development of the publication. Who who was around the table when, when learning was drafted? Who did you get inputs from? How did this process move forward? Yeah, um, we had the future learning group uh, with Dr. Kenny Beerling. She had two education, um, NPS-trained education Marines, majors, Major Scotty Black, Major Rich Farnsworth. And then there were a couple other folks involved on the periphery, and we, we sat down, had a discussion, and talked about a general outline of what we think it ought to be. They went back, they worked it up, they sent it to me when I approved it. Okay, let's start fleshing this thing out. Uh, and then as chapters got finished, I would send them out to a select group of folks. I personally would pick the ones because what I wanted was somebody that would provide us really good quality feedback, not do the grammar corrections, you know, didn't always work out. I was kind of surprised in a couple of cases where people thought it wasn't needed. But then what I determined in thinking about it was 
the people that are providing that feedback, this learning piece to them is so inherent to their nature. No wonder they would think that. But what I don't think they understand is the number of Marines that don't understand that or don't care about that, um, so aren't getting after it. And that's the target population that we have to get after because there are a lot of Marines that truly understand what we are talking about and learning, and they're all over it. But there's a lot more Marines that don't or won't. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, when I looked at a previous draft of the document, there were inspirational quotes peppered throughout, and they were all from general officers. And the feedback that I gave Dr. Veerling was, this is great, but but just in terms of sheer numbers, your primary audience are enlisted Marines. Yes. And it would be fantastic if you could find some of those Marines who are revered by the force and and find them yes. talking about the importance of education and the, the importance of lifelong learning. And and I was very happy to see as the document developed over time that this wasn't just a document written for officers, right. that this was a document written for the Marine Corps. Right. Yes. Because that's essential, I think. Yeah. But that's the kind of quality feedback we're talking about. You know, people that could, you know, when you take a look at it holistically and saying, okay, I see what you're trying to do, um, a little too much of this, not enough of that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we needed because one of the things you found with the writing team in particular was they were so closely involved with it, they weren't seeing the forest because they're in the midst of the trees. Mm-hmm. So the Commandant's Planning Guidance that came out last summer talked about 21st century learning and modernizing education. How does this fit into that larger process? Yeah, again, it's that's to me the engine of change. You know, the doctoral publication is the why it needs to happen. 21st century learning, uh, what we're trying to do with that, that's the engine of change. How do we change the learning culture of the Marine Corps? Uh, and hopefully everybody kind of gets on board the engine and moves along with it instead of getting run over by it. But part of it is the responsibility of our headquarters. We have enforced a method of curriculum development and formal schools management that really ties people's hands with how you go about doing adult education. And it's very much an industrial age process where one of the things you know about it is, yes, it's good for pushing through large numbers of people, which of course is a requirement, but it's also the least effective way for people to learn. And again, that's the got to be the key. What do they understand? What do they retain? What have they learned as they're moving on from their school experience, whether it's an MOS school or a PME school or whatever it is? Um, what are they taking back to the job with them? So how do you do that differently? And then what's actually in those schools? You know, in many cases, we try and, okay, that they're a captive audience, jam as many things into their head as we possibly can because we have them there at the time. Well, how much of that just washes over them and they never remember it? And so one of the things we're focusing on is, all right, what specifically we need to teach them right then and there? And then what can we deliver after some OJT when they've started figuring things out and they've got a little bit more savvy uh, with regards to the MOS? What else can we deliver via different means so we don't have to pull them in a schoolhouse? One of the challenges we also have is Marines awaiting training mm-hmm. because of that industrial age process. You have to wait for enough Marines to show up. Then there's a course start date, a course graduation date, and then they move on. In some of our MOS schools, we've got Marines sitting around for months waiting. And so why don't we use information technology where, frankly, it's almost embarrassing because it's happening in a bunch of other areas. They show up, you administratively check them in, you give them a, um, an electronic tablet, they start working through the course syllabus, they can work together um, as a team, it's problem focused, the instructor's there to coach, teach, mentor, and when they demonstrate the necessary level of competence, they move on. Mm-hmm. And we've tried that in a couple of instances, and the Marines loved it and finished much faster and with much better competence. Something that we struggle with in the schoolhouse environment is the need for reflection. 
that to your point that that students only re- we as humans only retain so much information yes. you can only cram so much in in a particular period of time and it's just a neurological just the brain will only hold so and different people have different thresholds how do you think about the challenge of particularly if we're doing a lifelong learning model and doing what we do in a formal either PME or a resident or distance PME, but looking for opportunities between those PME formal experiences, how do we think about balancing what the Marines are doing in their regular day jobs with the learning that we want them to do as part of their regular, should be regular expected professional development? How do we build that time for reflection? Well, the thing that is, is in some ways that's kind of presenting them with a solution to the problem. When if they understand the why and they're personally inspired to get after these things, they find the time. They figure it out. And that's what we have to get to because, you know, in many ways I equate this with uh, a lot of Marines to the physical fitness piece like CrossFit. You know, if you just go out and start CrossFit, (laughs) you're going to tear yourself up. You're probably going to hurt yourself. But the more you do it, Practicing doing it correctly, the more you expose yourself to it, the more you do it, the more you're able to do, the more you're able to absorb, and you can build yourself up significantly. But it's the same thing with learning because the more you learn, the more you read, the more you expose yourself to different concepts and different ways of thinking about things, the more you're able to come up with answers, the more you're able to, you know, part of the reason why I finish four books a week on average is because. First of all, I have pretty good vocabulary um, from reading as much as I do. Um, It's built up over time and I can absorb a lot of these things because it just, the the repetition I've done over the course of my life, that's just a matter of choice. You can get that way, but I'm personally inspired to do that. And I think that's what you have to get is Marines personally inspired to get after these things and understanding they will never, ever be smart enough. One of the things I talked to him about is like, okay, how many times have you been in a tough situation, especially in combat, where you see the stunned mullet response on the part of a, a leader because they don't know what to do? Part of the reason why I read as much as I do is because I want to make sure that never happens to me. And as you get older and you get increasing responsibility, the challenges get more and more complex. And we can't afford to sit there and kind of go, holy smokes, what do I do now? You have to get after it. You have to come up with some sort of a solution, even if it's what some people refer to as satisficing. It's not a great solution, but it is a solution that can, you know, take care of the issue at hand at least a bit um, instead of just kind of throwing your hands in the air going, I have no idea what to do here. And if you start that conditioning process of individuals building the habits and and getting the mental sets and reps in. I know that, that might be a dated term now. No, but, but that's exactly but that's, what it is. If you start when someone is 18 years old, when they're first coming into the Marine Corps, imagine what they'd be capable of doing at the end of a career. Yes. I mean, that's that's. Phenomenal. But it goes back to what uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about. I mean, there, there's some people poo-poo some of the things he's talking about, but that 10,000-hour rule. If you do something for 10,000 hours, you're pretty damn good at it. And I equate that to driving. You know, a lot with a lot of the audiences I talk to with a PME on PME that I do, I say, okay, everybody's been driving since they're about 16 years old. Uh, so 10, 15, 20 years of driving. You do things when you're driving that you don't even know you're doing because it's just become intuitional for you because mm-hmm. um, you have so much time and effort doing it. Whereas opposed to a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old just learning how to drive, you know, everything's a threat. They don't really know how to react to things. You know, they, they, they're not smooth. So it's... It's the same in just about everything. 
You know, I mean, if you practice at it, um, if you get really, really good at it from a lot of repetitions and a lot of sets, chess playing, same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you first start going after it, it's frustrating because everybody beats you. And then you start building up over time and getting better and better at it. You start recognizing the patterns, how things are happening, um, especially if you're reading about it and playing it. You know, that combination is you're eventually going to be almost unbeatable if you keep after it. So I want to highlight something that I think is clear in the doctrine, but just to make sure that our listeners are also clear. And that is when you're talking about learning, you're not necessarily just talking about academic learning. No. But that is one piece of it. But learning itself, again, as I would say, it's kind of a habit of mind. It's a practice. Yes. I could be learning international relations theory or ethics, which are my two disciplines, or I could be learning how to plant the garden so I get the most number of flowers out of it. That, that, that learning piece can be just as practical as it can be conceptual and theoretical. Absolutely. Yeah. Because one of the things I talk about, again, that PME and PME that I do, um, by the way, the Marine Corps Association Foundation has it hung on their website, um, the presentation I did, TDS. But I talk about the combination of knowledge and experience gives you wisdom. And the experience piece, some of that is actual practical experience doing these things. But because especially in the profession of arms, we don't actually get to do our profession, our calling uh, as much as some might like. And the vicarious experience aspect of that, that you get through reading, it's absolutely essential. But that knowledge combined with the experience gives you the wisdom to be able to deal with things much better than anybody else. I mean, you look at people like Secretary Mattis, General Dunford, um, General Petraeus, General Kelly, General John Kelly. I mean, people wonder at them, their ability to almost have the answer before the questions even been asked. That doesn't happen by accident. You know, there's a heck of a lot of knowledge and experience that went into making that. Most of it on their own time, their personal dedication to reading, studying their profession and getting after it. Mm -hmm. So what does success look like for you? Five years from now, this doctrine is out there. How do you know that it's had an impact? That personal inspiration piece. Marines understand, you know, we have some Marines right now, as I said before, that really get it. When we have most Marines that get it, when we have most Marines that, you know, especially if we get into a combat situation with somebody that is actively trying to be asymmetrical against us and, and, and find our weaknesses and get after them or fight in different ways than they're even thought of, if we have the ability to outthink them and outadapt them, that is success. Uh, that's what we have to build towards. And because, uh, you know, what a lot of people look back to the Iraq and Afghanistan experience, frankly, our opponents in that fight weren't very good. The Afghans were better, but it's also dated experience. What's next? You know, people have been watching us fight for 15 to 17 years. So what are they going to do? Are they going to try and go toe-to-toe -to, -toe to us? One of the things I've talked about in the past is only one person's done that. They've done it twice over the last 20, 25 years, and he lost badly both times. That's Saddam Hussein. People tend to sit up and take notice. There's not going to be a whole lot of other people dumb enough to do that. So we have to be able to adjust. And when the Marines have the ability to look at something and realize that this is not what we plan for, but I've got a plan. We're, we're going to get after this. And it's the instant innovation and adaptation instead of, oh, hold on, what do we do now? That's success. Mm -hmm. So I heard a rumor that made me very happy. And that rumor is that you have recorded an audiobook version of MCDP7 learning. Yes. I love it. Why? Well, when I, I'm part of the way I'm a, able to read as much as I do is I listen to books all the time. 
Um, I do the world's most boring activity, which is swimming. Uh, I have a waterproof iPod shuffle uh, and earplugs, <laughs> and I'm my watch counts laps. I'm listening to the book as I'm swimming, so mentally I'm not even there. You know, when people can do things like that, or driving, or other activities where you can make maximum use of that time, to me that's that's invaluable. And some people hearing it is better than reading it. Um, we're also doing an interactive workbook to help people get more out of it and understand the concepts better. Um, that should be coming out here fairly soon. But all of that is in the effort to deliver it via different means um, to get Marines' attention and get them to understand it, take it on board, um, and get the why and be inspired. That's great. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I, I get a lot out of uh, listening to podcasts or books or even newspapers now. So every morning when I drive in, I listen to to the the news updates from some different newspapers. Mm, um, good. And it's fantastic. And then on the ride home, I'll listen to Audible or listen to a book. And I, I can now do it at 1.5 speed, which gets you through a lot quicker than if you just listen to it at the regular speed. You're still a non-hacker. I, I listen I'm not. To, I listen to double yeah. speed on my phone. So I guess. I'm not. I'm not there. That's not. That's not enjoyable for me. But I do. I'm just teasing you. But I do think it's true. If what we want is to to influence the force, if you are looking to change the culture of the Marine Corps, and you are, mm-hmm. doctrinal pubs have an important role to play in the Marine Corps. Yes. But you need them. You need Marines to be able to engage in them in a way that they can relate to, and and make it as easy as possible for them to digest the material. Yes. And so, an audio version, the interactive workbook, so people can really, literally engage the text yes. in different ways, and then also links to go to learn more if exactly. they want to. Yes. It's critical, right? Yes. I mean, that's how you model for them. This is what adult learning looks like. Yeah. With this particular, it's problem. also a bit of a reach back because when I was a lieutenant. Uh, FMFM1 warfighting came out uh, from General Gray. Um, He took over the commandant when I was a first lieutenant. And one of the things that came out shortly after that was an audio book on cassette tapes. Do people even know what cassette tapes are anymore? (laughs) But on cassette tapes was the audio version of that. And that I thought was fantastic. Yeah, that's great. So what are some main concepts that are in the pub that you would like listeners to be thinking of, be aware of when they uh, read MCDP-7? Yeah, it's it, a big piece of that. And some of this comes from um, an Australian major general named Mick Ryan, who's just fantastic. Um, but his concept of talking about the intellectual edge, you know, that, that intellectual edge that ha- always has to be developed and continually honed that enables us to outthink our opponents. Uh, because technology is moving very, very fast. And it's widely proliferating. And the impact that it's going to have on us, we don't even know. We're trying to keep our eyes on it, trying to understand it, trying to keep up with it. But it's, it's moving fast. It's changing fast. And so we can't count on technological edge anymore. We have to be able to have the intellectual edge. Uh, and that's a matter of choice. And our maneuver warfighting philosophy relies very heavily on having an intellectual edge. For our young Marines, no matter what level they're at, they have their, the intent from those above them. They understand what needs to happen. And they figure out the how. And when conditions change, as they always do, well, I know he said we need to do this, that, or the other. I can still accomplish that by going around this way. They don't have to ask. They understand the intent. They get after it. It's taking intelligent initiative in the absence of orders um, and not waiting for those orders. Uh, One of the things that I admired about the the German army and the interwar years, um, the way they developed their young leaders and for them – Taking the initiative, even if it was the wrong way to do something, 
they did something wrong, that was still better than doing nothing mm-hmm. and waiting to be told what to do. Take some initiative. Do something. Get after it. And if we have our Marines learning well enough, they're always going to be taking intelligent initiative. And, you know, I've seen some units where that has been fostered by the commander uh, and nobody can come up with them. Nobody. And that's got to be the goal is anybody that comes up against the United States Marine Corps is going to have a really bad day uh, because no matter what they do, we're always a step ahead of them. And everything they come up with is a day late and a dollar short. So we have a, a small but loyal listener base here at Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. And as soon as they hear this podcast, the very first thing they're going to do, if they haven't already done it, is go out and read MCDP7. I hope so. Then what? What do you want them to do next? Then they should start thinking about their own personal development program, their own personal continuing education program. Um, what are they doing? You know, we have all joined a profession. And you know, you're a professional, you're a professional, you know what it takes to be part of that profession, how you continue to educate yourself, continue to develop knowledge, continue to get better in that profession. When you don't do that, especially as doctors or lawyers, they call that malpractice. Well, again, we're the most intellectually and physically demanding profession on the face of the earth, national security, people's lives are on the line. Malpractice in our line of work, that's filling body bags until you figure it out. And you can't get much more wrong than that. Um, and so to think about the concepts presented in learning, take a look at your own personal development. What do we do? What am I doing? How could I be doing things better? How do I cast a really wide net? How do I get to understand, first of all, understand humans first, because that's what we we're trying to get humans to do things they wouldn't naturally be doing. Um, that's what leadership is. Um, how do you understand humans? And then how do you understand all the aspects that come into um, what we do with our profession? You know, technological aspects, the um, thought processes, emotions, you know, culture, all the things that impact our ability to get the job done. And even if it's just one step at a time, one book at a time, build yourself at a professional uh, continuing education program, that's going to make you better all the time. And it never ends. That's what they've got to get to. And I would say we at the university, uh, through the Gray Research Center, the Library of the Marine Corps, yes. Lejeune Leadership Institute, the different programs, things like this podcast, that one of the one of the key drivers behind our starting this podcast is we wanted to provide educational opportunity for Marines who weren't in, currently enrolled in an MCU school. And so once every other week, you can listen for a half hour, 45 minutes and, and get something new. It's not reading, but it's going to tie to our next question, which is related to reading. Mm-hmm. But it at least gets people thinking. It has them engaging the current ideas and what's going on and, yeah. and continuing that process. But it's about the inspiration piece. Mm-hmm. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. Or she can do right. it, I can do it. And how do you inspire them? Because you can't make people do things and get them to accept it as a personal personal incentive, um, you know their personal program. You know it, they have to be inspired. It's the intrinsic motivation to get after things. Extrinsic doesn't really work all that well. Um, it's that old saying: you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. When there is that intrinsic motivation, you don't even have to lead him to water. Mm-hmm. So, next question. Yes. Is that the Last question, we ask it to all of our guests, and you have to be very thoughtful because your throughput is high. Very high. And that is, what is the most important thing that you're reading right now that our listeners should know about? A very long, multiple-part series on Abraham Lincoln. 
by Michael Burlingame. I've read a number of different um, multi-volume series on uh, Lincoln. One of them was by Hay and Nicolay, 10-volume series um, on Abraham Lincoln. But this one by Burlingame is tremendously good because it goes, each one of the books goes in pieces and parts of his life. Hmm. And one of the most amazing things about President Lincoln was he only had two years of formal education his entire life. All the rest of it was personal professional development, continuing education, all the things we're talking about and talking about being the right guy at the right time. I can't imagine what would have happened if anybody else had been elected president at that time. He was handed the worst possible situation you could ever imagine. Uh, George Washington had nothing on him. Um, you know, the entire country was falling apart from the time he was elected in November of 1860, uh, to the time he took office in March of 1861, his predecessor watched everything falling apart and did nothing. Just let it go. Yeah, South seceding. You know, they're taking our, our uh, arsenals. Yeah, okay, just let them go. It's all right. Just let it go. Uh, and this is what he was handed when he was inaugurated in early March 1861. Uh, and an emergency situation. Oh, by the way, Fort Sumter's running out of food. What are you going to do about it? And at one point, he couldn't even get troops into the capital to help defend the capital because Maryland was largely a succeeded state. He took some unusual steps to make sure they didn't actually secede, uh, but they had a lot of Southern sympathizers. So he couldn't even get troops to the capital of Washington, D.C. I mean, the desperate situation that he was in and how he dealt with it. He had no military training whatsoever. None. He fought in the Black Hawk War in the 1830s, I think it was. And one of the things he talked about was, he goes, yeah, I gave blood for my country, mostly to mosquitoes during the Black Hawk War. Um, didn't even see any fighting. But here he is. We'd never had a military the size that it eventually became during the Civil War, you know, as a percentage of the population, you know, it compared to what we have today, it's not even close. Theirs was much, much larger. So were the casualties. He went through a series of general officers. They were leading the military forces of the United States, trying to keep the Union together um, and force the South to understand you can't succeed. That's not part of the bargain. And he ended up firing one after another till he mm -hmm. found one that would work. Um, and the intestinal fortitude it took to do that, especially with somebody like McClellan, who was one of the first ones, who was tremendously popular. I mean, wow, the moral courage it took to do that. So just the admiration you have for a guy like that, the more you read about him, the more the different aspects of his life. I mean, he lost one of his sons before they came to office. He lost another one in office, you know, challenges with his wife, challenges with his family, challenges with depression. You know, he's, he's, dealing with depression the whole time. I mean, and he overcame it all. You know, one of the best examples of that is a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. But again, I to me, I just can't read enough about him because the way he dealt with things and just persevered through all of that is just absolutely amazing. Well, Major General Mullen, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Padgett Howell, our show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWar College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.